the church who I happen to know the founding pastor put up a video about charity, about helping the poor. And one of the first things that the presenter said was, Christians should never get into charity work, get into giving to the poor to be a hero. Because sometimes in our culture we do things so that we do good things, but we, because of where we live sometimes, whether it's through Instagram or Facebook or whatever, we take pictures and, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me. We go in to do heroic things rather than to be a servant. And that's one of the things in this passage that, that Jesus addresses. I also think it's interesting that both in this and the passage that follows on prayer, he says, don't do this. He realizes that people can take, whether it's giving to the poor or prayer, and you can turn it around to you rather than to God or to the poor. And so he says, don't do it this way. Now, in chapter 6, which obviously is after chapter 5, in this three-chapter sermon, something happens, and it just seems so natural to the writer, because to the reader it might be, where'd this come from? Why is Jesus talking this way? And then when you think about the story of Jesus, what we read and studied last week from Luke, it makes sense. In chapter 6, he's talking about your father, our father, and the, the prayer, our father who art in heaven. All of a sudden, God is being addressed as a father. That was so unique and so different for the Jewish people to hear the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, their redeemer, their covenant maker, called Father. And as we look at this passage and we think about stewardship and we think about what it means to give to those who are in need, all of this, Jesus puts in the context of living our lives before the Father. Of having that thought in our head that everything I do, every conversation, every action, that it's before the Father. Now, there are several places in this passage that we think of in terms of the whole story of living in the midst of God's grand story, of thinking about from the very beginnings that we've looked at, to seeing God and coming to this, you see the intimacy of being an heir and being called, calling God Father, and by doing that, saying that you're a child of God. Saying to a people who were living with enemy soldiers occupying their land, not under their own rule, 
But you see that that declaration of Jesus as a 12-year-old now begins to be woven throughout his speech about his addressing to us. And when you look at the use of Father in the Sermon on the Mount and you see this intimacy, you see this expectation, you see something that both the writer, Matthew, and the speaker, Jesus, expects people to get when he uses the word Father. See, there's there's no explanation. He just starts using it. See, lots of times we want everything explained to us. But when we read scripture, it's like, okay, here's what we have. And so we have this very intimate family name for God that is so covenantal. When you you look at the end of verse 4, or And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. You see, sees in secret hooks all the way back to Genesis 3 when they were pushed out of the garden. Because what did he say to them? Where are you? See, the alienation created the separation, and now with the use of the word Father, he says, I see you. You're not alone. You're significant. There's that simple little phrase that God sees us. That no matter what the voices of the world, what the voices of families, what the voices of culture, whatever, God sees you. You know, as a parent, when children are growing up, you want them to be in, you want to be able to see them, right? And in some families, in some places, the first time a child goes out of sight, in my childhood, is when you got on your bike and you rode around the block. Now, in the neighborhood I grew up, my parents knew everybody around the block, and 90% of them, all, they all worked at the same factory. Half of the people went to the same church. So riding around the block out of sight meant that all these eyes of these other people would see you. Now today, people go around the block, kids go around the block on Facebook and Instagram into the globe. And what, what I wish I could hold kids' hands, talk in their whisper in their ear, is because sometimes those voices in Instagram and Facebook You know, we have cases of 10-year-olds being bullied so badly they commit suicide. 
How do you help a 10-year-old realize that God sees you and God loves you and God is with you, no matter what the world might say? You have a 15-year-old girl in Nigeria who says, I am a Christian to her kidnapping hoodlum captives, that I will not give up Christ for my freedom. She probably has a strong sense, and again, you know, it's one of those Corey Ten Boom things that you realize that sometimes in the darkest things in your life is when Christ is the brightest. To realize that God sees you in a hospital room, on a hospice bed. God sees you. That's part of what it means to call him father. You're never out of his sight. You are that significant. No matter what the world says. I've started going to the leisure center to work out in Kyle. You know, I'm, I'm 69 years old, but I want to tell you what's happening on the television is the same thing as when I was a kid. You have all these acne medicines, you have all these things about your skin. It's still an issue that sells through guilt. To tell children you are known by God, God sees you. That the voices of scripture, the voices of God will be louder than the voices of culture that can cause anybody despair. Because we have, I mean, my kids were amazed that in the UK they have a minister of loneliness. It's that big of a deal that you have a cabinet level minister of loneliness. But what we know is that it is a global phenomenon. You go to China, you go to Japan. See, it's not just Western cultures. It's across the globe. To help people know that they are seen by God because he's their father. Do you see the profoundness and the, the liberation that this gives people? Even if they've come out of a very dysfunctional and destructive family. To know that there really is a father who loves them, who sees them. And then, he's the one that rewards. Remember the verses about being rewarded in what we sang? Remember in the sermon series when we looked at Genesis 15, I Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So that when we read about reward, we need to go all the way back to God's promise. Again, it's God's promise to be our God. That that is part of our inheritance. That the voices of the world who deny, who just don't even talk about it. See, that's the way we should live all of our life. And so when we talk about stewardship, when we talk about money, we need to realize that God is a part of everything we do, including that of giving to the needy. 
Now, the next thing I want us to think about is, notice the way he approaches this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. See, it's not about practicing right, you know, he says, here's how the right way to practice righteousness is. That we are called to practice our righteousness before our Father in heaven and not look to the world. He speaks about this, the synagogues, the streets, the hypocrites. Because what the person is saying is, hey, look at me. And Jesus says, guess what? You get your reward. But it's not your father's reward. See, how, how do we in this culture of gratification get people to say, I want God to be my reward? That is going to be enough. Now, I have yet to find a commentary that tells me that people really blew trumpets. Now, I don't know. That may have happened. You know, we have kind of an image of this, don't we, when we see Jesus saying, see that woman who put those little copper coins in? You have these images in Scripture that talk about giving. Now, in practicing your righteousness, the first thing is you want to be like Christ. Now, we we realize because of the way he introduces this that doing godly things, doing holy things, can be falsified. Can be artificial and wrong. You know, when you read the beginnings, the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, and you go through the images, and and you see the very practical things that God is talking about, and it is something that Matthew 28, at the very end, when he says, go make disciples of the nations, and you have four things that he says. He says, go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. How do we know how to be righteous? We teach what Jesus taught us, to be like him. And so the beginning of Matthew 5 is like that. But Matthew 22 is that passage where when Jesus says, you know, well, they want to know, well, what are we supposed to do? And he says, the first thing you do, Matthew 22 says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, spirit. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. So we have these illustrations of what it means to practice your righteousness. To love God and to love your neighbor. To realize that when we call him father that I am what I call an adopted disciple. Because using that word father and knowing is the only reason I can call him father is because he's adopted me. That's his covenant commitment to me. Because many of us have tasted and know what it's like to lose our earthly fathers. To lose a father that is no longer here 
But I know he is with his heavenly father. And so when we think about practicing our righteousness, see, we don't want to be the hypocrite. We don't want to be a show-off. How many times in the church have people used power of shame to try to get people to behave, to conform? Rather than say, your Father in Heaven loves you, and your Father in Heaven has taught us how to live, and let's struggle together with the Beatitudes, with loving your neighbor, with loving God with all we have. So that we want to practice our righteousness, but we know that it can be detoured, that it can be distracted. It says, don't do that. Then the last point I want to think about is when you give to the needy. Again, it's paying attention to small words. In this passage, both when he criticizes the bad way and then he gives you the good way, it's when. It's an assumption that you will be giving to the needy. And one of the things we need to remember in here is that in his audience, when he talks about giving to the needy, he's talking about giving over the 10%. You know, people want to know in stewardships, how much do I have to give? Well... I respond with what I will be teaching and saying both from Jesus and from Paul is that we are to be generous. See, the need, giving that coin to the needy was above the 10% you give to the temple that you give to the priests. This is giving something direct. Now, one of the things in this video that I watched is that he say we have a responsibility to give to the needy in the context of our culture, of where we are. And you see, in our culture and where we are today, we understand the difference between systems and, and symptoms. You see, we may look at somebody and, and see dirty clothes. We may look at somebody and see bad teeth. Say, how do we help people? In the United States, we we have places that we call food deserts, which means you can't get to healthy food. Notice the word healthy. Usually means fruits and vegetables. Um, You can't get there for a certain distance. If you're in a rural area, it's longer than if you're in an urban area. So, getting together with local people, they try to figure out how do we create a grocery store in a neighborhood that doesn't have that. How can we get people invested? Out of that gets what we call urban gardens. Whether it's in unused land or whether you plant it on the top of your house or whether you plant it on the planet, it's getting urban people to help feed themselves. It's getting people to say, I need how to learn to cook simple meals. 
for my family that I can afford. And so we understand, okay, how do we see and then how do we find a solution? On an international way, one of the things, and I read this this week, was one of the ways that they are founding, one of the best ways to fight poverty is to let women spend the money in their community. (laughs) They have these little micro-loan communities. They have basically startup companies of people who weave or do this or do that to get together and they form a community and they solve problems together. So that they aren't dependent upon somebody coming and giving them money every week. They're able to create their own resources in their own context so that they can take care of their families. But see, as part of taking the gospel, as part of giving to the needy, is help the men to understand that it's not an attack on your manhood. I mean, you look at all of these cultural things. I remember after the first Gulf War, I had friends who went into northern Iraq to help Kurds, medical people. The children suffered symptoms of malnutrition in spite of all the food. You know why? Because of their cultural customs where the men would sit down and eat all that they wanted and then the wives would eat children. How do you approach somebody and say your culture is killing your kids? Your identity is killing your kids. See, this is why it goes back to if I continues to teach and think about God as my father, it's going to shatter cultural barriers in ways I can never imagine. But see, when he says when, it means that I'm going to be doing this over and above the tide, that I'm going to be taking care of things locally. People I can see, but I need to look at the difference between their symptoms and their systems. Can, how do I get them so they do not need to be needy? You think about things in the history the church did was, was education. Here in Scotland, one of the things I remember when I visited John Knox's house was that John Knox said to the deacons in the churches that he was planting, if you have poor families that can't afford to send their kids to school, deacon funds should be used to pay for it. In other words, the church was not going to say, just because you were poor, you shouldn't go to school. Now, we know from history that, you know, trying to figure out how to educate everybody, that was something that that grew and we learned more and more about it. But at the beginning, Knox said to the church in Scotland, educate the poor kids how to read, write, and do math. Three simple things. We think about how medicine through missionaries has changed. 
It used to be that white American missionaries would go do all the work. And they said, wait a minute. What we need to do is we start training generations of local nurses and doctors. And see, I know that from my experience in Iraq that sometimes that's very hard because Iraqi doctors would not work with American nurses because they would not work with women because there's no nursing care in their health system. We would heal people and then we would send them to the Iraqi hospital and they would die in three days because of infections because they didn't have nurses to take care of the wounds. You see how sometimes there are systems in place that, that strangle people? That when we call God our Father, we need to be willing to look at all the children because when we think about calling God our Father, it's because He chose us. He chose to adopt us. So when I see somebody from another culture, another language, another location, and they call God their Father, my brother and my sister, because of what Christ did. I mean, go back and think about how the, the assurance of pardon transforms our lives and our ways of looking at each other. And so I want to close, when we think about stewardship, think about it as part of life that is under our Father. Your Father, as Jesus says. No explanation. Just he uses it to describe the life of a disciple. And that's why I say when we think about discipleship, we need to remember that we're disciples because we were adopted. We were brought in. Not because of anything that we have, but only because of the grace, the love, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we live our lives before you, we are so thankful that we are not alone, that you see us, that you want to reward us, that we can pray and worship and call you our Father. That no matter what stage of life we are or how long we have known you. And Father, we pray that if there are those who do not know you, who are not comfortable in calling you Father, that Father, we would be able to listen to them and answer the questions as you draw them to yourselves into your family. We pray, Father, and give you thanks that we are able to call you Father. And that in our stewardship, in the management of the money that we have, because you have given us the ability to earn it, you've also given us the ability to give it. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.